Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. You know, Martin Luther wanted to throw the book of James out. He actually, he had his own translation of the Bible, and he put it at the end because he was so focused on faith righteousness. Faith righteousness, faith righteousness. I mean, that was his thing, and that was all he could see. So when he read the book of James, you know, there was things in there where he said it felt like a contradiction, so he put it at the end, you know, because people get tired of reading. Maybe they won't make it that far or something, but... but Really, there's, there's not a contradiction. And I've gone through, you can go back and, and watch and listen to some of the recent messages where I build the idea of it's not either or. It's not works righteousness or faith righteousness. And it's not an and meaning that God promises righteousness and then you become righteous by doing works to make you more righteous or more accepted. And the truth is, holiness Righteousness, sanctification, they're all spiritual conditions before the Lord, not things that progressively build into your lives. In other words, when you say yes to Jesus, you are standing before the Father spiritually, and you are lacking because your performance is not good enough, and your flesh can't go into His presence. So what he did was he sent his son here. He himself manifested to exchange natures with us. In other words, he lived a perfect sinless life. He became the perfect sacrifice. He conquered death, hell, and the grave, ascended with his own blood, took perfect human blood into heaven so that he could bring heaven's life to us. And that's what we do. We receive his life because of his blood having been spread in heaven. Amen. Amen. I mean, we go home now. But the truth is, you have to approach your relationship with God from that perspective, from that spiritual perspective. What James does is he comes along and he's dealing with their physical behavior, not their spiritual righteousness. Actually, what he's doing is the thing that he's questioning is the kind of faith that they say they operate in, not necessarily their works. He addresses the works but the context, he starts in James 2 and he goes on through, the context of what he's talking about is the faith that they're operating in. So he says, all right, guys, you say you have this kind of faith, but you're complaining, you're favoring rich people in the church, you're comparing your sins as if your sin is not as bad as that person's over there. What is going on? This faith that you say that you have should not look like this. It should look like this, where you build each other up, where it's encouraging, where you're you know, you speak life. You're not speaking blessing and cursing at the same time. So there's a bit of a misconception when you read James because you have to understand Paul over and over and over and over and over when he talked about righteousness, talked about the eternal spiritual truth of what righteousness really is. James, for a couple of chapters, is addressing the wrong fruit. And he's pointing them to the idea that righteousness should produce this kind of fruit. Not your fruit makes you righteous. You see the difference? It really is a big difference. And it's pretty basic. And we know that until something goes wrong in our lives. And we're like, God, what did I do wrong? Maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe I, you know, we start looking to our performance based on whether or not God's going to be kind to us or not. But you have to know that you are seated 
with Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God. That's where you are. When you think of yourself and you think about God, you have to know that He's stuck to you spiritually. And you can't shake Him off. Because I'm going to get to, in James chapter 4 here, where he starts talking about the devil. <laughs> Don't lose your minds, please, because... Yeah. Because he gets there, we're going through the book of James, and he talks about the devil, so we're going to address it. But it's interesting because he's talking about, all right, this kind of righteousness should produce this kind of behavior. I'm not seeing it in your behavior, so I'm wondering what kind of faith you're really operating in. So now, let's get over to James chapter 3. And I'm going to pack a lot in here today because, you know, y'all are all right reading the Bible in church. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures today. And you know, they, I've said this before, but they tell you, pick one or two and just, you know, dance around it for a while. But we're going to read a lot. Y'all okay with that? So the kind of the idea that we're looking at is two kinds of wisdom. Spiritual wisdom or carnal wisdom. Spiritual knowledge or carnal knowledge. James is approaching expressing Christianity from a carnal perspective. Not saying that he's teaching it wrong. I'm just saying he's addressing their behaviors. Paul, when he talks about righteousness, deals with the spiritual truth. Not making an excuse for behavior. You know, Paul was accused of preaching... Uh, permissiveness. He'd say, you know, they, they, they accused him, like, Paul, are you saying, the, the way that you preach righteousness makes me think that it's okay to sin. Paul's like, should we therefore sin? God forbid. Sin produces death. Don't continue in sin. It'll kill you. But you're accepted before the Father. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to deal with sin, you know, so James addresses it. So, we talk a lot about that kind of thing in here. So this, let's pick, pick up in um, James. You know what, first off, I want to do this because it's good to go back and lay this foundation. Philip, if you'd follow me here, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. A little bit more review, but um, it's, it's just it's good stuff. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Y'all get tired of review? No. I forget from week to week what I preach, so I know y'all forget what was preached sometimes. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and then I'm going to jump to James 1, 13, because this is the tone that James sets when he's dealing with everything else that he teaches on. He's talking about when you're dealing with difficulties, when you're dealing with problems that come along in life, don't blame them on God. God wants to help you. God will give you wisdom. It's the good stuff that it's from God. In fact, your mindset is probably the reason you're blaming things on God. So then he starts talking about their tongue. It's just really interesting how it all ties together. But watch what he, this is, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The word temptation is the word test or trial. But we see here, that, so when, when Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil or to be tested or tried, it's the same word here. So here we see, and don't, don't we usually hear this scripture, you've probably read it, but don't you usually hear this scripture and think, God's not going to put more on me than I can bear? You ever heard that? Yeah. I know we've, I've asked you that question for three weeks in a row now, but it bears repeating. That's not what it says. It relates temptation to the things that we usually say that God is making my life difficult. God is taking my job, God is doing this to me to teach me a lesson, 
That scenario it uses the word temptation. All right. It's, it's, uh, it's important that we understand what he's dealing with here. All those things that we say that God is doing to us to make life challenging, they're called temptations, and watch what happens. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. God is faithful. Say, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, does that say God won't put more on you than you can bear? No. That's not what it says. Uh, but when you are tempted or when you go under a test or a trial, he will also provide a way out so that you can do, endure it. Now, I wish the people that would quote that scripture erroneously would actually go back and read it and read the second half because the point is there's a promise to get out of it. Well, you're saying you could just never have problems? No, that's not what I'm saying. Life's not going to be perfect. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, different from temptation. Tribulation is external pressure. You may experience suffering as you're following your call with God, but suffering is not what God puts you through to produce holiness. He puts you through the blood of Jesus to produce holiness. Suffering, when you're suffering, if you remain faithful confidently toward God, you will learn patience, you will learn things, and you'll glorify God, but God is not crafting an experiment for you to suffer to then give you something else. Yeah. Amen? Amen? I mean, it's a big deal. I know I hammer this a lot, but we have to know these. So, James 1.13. This ends here by saying, when it happens, He provides the way out. That's grace. Amen. James 1.13. Remember it said, those temptations that God will uh, not allow you to suffer, but will provide the way out. This says, when you're tempted, so, so the other one sounds like he's providing the temptation and the way out, doesn't it? It's like, okay, well, God's going to allow you to be tempted, but he's also going to provide the way out. But then this sharpens the point, and it says, but when you're tempted, this is James 1.13, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Here's the main thing that I want you to get on these two passages. Because the world will say, especially the church world, will say, God won't put more on me than I can bear. That's wrongly quoted. What it's saying is he won't allow more, on, more to come on you, but will provide the way out. But then this says, then don't even say that it's from God. Do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I know this is re repeating, but it, I, I, I think I could preach this every week and be as, just as excited about it. Because the body of Christ needs to know this truth. We need to change the way the world sees God so that they actually trust Him. If the world still thinks that God is going to craft these difficulties for you to gain an aspect of salvation, then we as the body of Christ have not preached the gospel effectively. Right. We're still leaving people left to their own efforts, especially when they miss it, and then the church comes by and says, you know what, you're going to hell because you're doing this. It's like, well, what kind of hope is that? I mean, I'm not denying hell. It's a place. It's to be avoided in Jesus. But the point is, you know, what are we leaving the world with? Hope in deliverance through the grace of God? Or like this mixed muddy water of who we think God is because of our lives? Yeah. So, all right. 
So that's the point he sets this whole tone with. You're complaining, don't complain, don't blame it on God. It's the good stuff that's from God. Then he starts dealing with what probably created the mindset for them to blame God, which was their complaining and their, all the carnal stuff that they're going through. Then he, starts, then he gets down here and um, he addresses in James 3 the issue. So last week we stopped, I think, in verse 12. James 3.13, we'll pick up here. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, I like to kind of dig a little bit. Where does the humility come from? Right? The humility comes from wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from? Very good. A plus. Remember in 1 James chapter 1, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. This is what he's talking about. The wisdom comes from God. The wisdom teaches you humility. Don't, aren't we taught that God will bring suffering into your life to humble you? Wow. You know how God humbles you? He gives you wisdom. And wisdom will teach you to choose His reality over your reality. His truth over your truth. That's what, that's what humility is. Humility, to be humble, is to submit your opinion to another person's opinions. And we want to submit our opinions to God's opinion. Do you get that? I mean, we should have some chairs being thrown across the room right now because it's like, wait a minute, I thought God humbled me by taking my job away from me. I thought God humbled me by creating chaos in my life. Have you ever been taught that? Some form of that? God will humble you. Watch out. You better be careful. Yeah. Man, it's just too... It, that's just too... The, the church has been smack-talking God for too long. No more smack talk. Stop it. I think that if James were standing up here preaching, he'd be made. Stop smack talking God. All right. But see, there's innuendos. It's interesting because when you read that and then you apply the logic that I applied to, which really I think is just a scriptural progression of where wisdom and humility come from. Do you, you see that? Did you follow me? Rather than our religious paradigm and the judgments that we've made about God because of the conditions of our lives, that's what we typically believe about God. So that's why when we read something like this, it's like, well, tilt, tilt, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's that good. I'm not sure God's really that good. I'm not really sure that God's not going to bring difficulty into my life. I, I, think the world, I think the church world still is stuck with those kinds of issues. So when you read these kinds of things, you kind of have to track back, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? So we know that wisdom comes from God when we ask Him. That teaches you uh, humility. And out of humility, you will walk in good deeds. In other words, when you have laid down your opinions and you have taken upon yourself God's opinions of who you are and what your call is, then you'll walk out good deeds. Amen. It'll be the fruit. Verse 14, 
But, if you, and, and, but there's another progression in 13. You can stay on 14. The progression is a kind of wisdom that you're operating in. Number one, there's carnal. Number two, there's spiritual. We want to operate in spiritual. Verse 14. But if you harbor, harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. See, now, this is the thing that people don't like about James because he takes away your excuse to be irresponsible. He takes away your excuse to use faith, faith righteousness as a license to sin. He takes away our excuse of saying, God loves me, it doesn't really matter anyway. That's a bunch of baloney. Your actions do matter because of, number one, knowing and reflecting into this planet what he's done in you, and number two, carrying this gospel to the world to bring people into his family. Amen. Of course our deeds matter, yeah. yes. but not as our righteousness, as the, the kind of ambassadors we are toward this world. So, so he's dealing with these kinds of things. Watch this, verse 15. So such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Uh-oh. You mean when I complain, that's the, that's the devil's realm? You know, you mean, you mean when I look at this world and I blame God for my issues and the condition of my life, that's, I'm entertaining what the devil would want me to believe about God? Right. See, when we deal with the enemy, here's what we have to deal with. And so many people, you know, there's different, and, and Vicki was in first service. Sometimes people think when I teach on these kinds of things that I'm contradicting her teachings because one of her teachings is, you know, she has a deliverance ministry as a part of her ministry. And what she does is she'll go in, and it might be different language, but what she does is she identifies the deepest root lie and then deals with the rest from there. Now, you can call it a chief and ruling spirit. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I don't really care what you call it. As long as you end up on the gospel, as long as that, 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 it's, that Jesus is glorified. And so just throwing it out there, she and I have had at-length discussions, and we come to, back to the same place. It's just different language. And I'm cool with that. So... But the, but the problem is, is that we're either... Now, the reason I say that is because we attribute too much to the demonic yes. realm. We give the devil way too much credit. Usually, the problem is right here. And, and the way that we're letting ourselves be influenced to think, whether it be demonic or not. I'm telling you the truth. The moment you believe the truth... The enemy has no influence over you at all. Amen. You don't even have to cast it out. You just won't entertain that lie anymore. Amen. You know, if, if there's an extreme and you have to cast out a demon, it's so that you can get that person to then focus on the truth. Yeah. Yes. Right. But you can build people up in the truth and they just won't entertain that stuff anymore anyway. Yeah. Right. But there are extremes where you've got you to get them some relief and then they can actually deal with the truth. But the, when you look at the enemy, you have to deal with function. The, the reason I was talking about that we have different labels and different ways of talking about it is because what we do as believers is we try to get into that realm and try to understand how all that stuff works 
and the details rather than just looking at what, what is the function of that realm. The function of that realm is to lie, deceive, and distract you from spiritual truth. Regardless of how organized you search it out to be, and none of that stuff even really matters. The point is, what should we look at when we look at those things? And James is dealing with it by saying, when you are engaged and you're using your tongue inappropriately and complaining and cursing each other, the fun you are operating in the function of the enemy. In other words, you're accusing each other. You're backbiting. You're, you know, you're cursing. A cursing is a spoken negative. It's not like, I've got a lot to say on this subject, by the way. Can you tell? I'm going to jump around here for a minute, then I'm going to get back on this. See, I, I've, I've got a little firsthand knowledge because I've been possessed. I mean, hearing voices, seeing it, having physical manifestations of laying on my bed and, and them pushing my head down and yanking my body out and hearing Slayer-type music in the background, which is like heavy metal. He knows. <laughs> All those old, old school musicians. You know, so I've seen it. And, and uh, you know, that doesn't make me an authority, and I don't really try to build doctrine out of personal experience. Amen. <laughs> but I can teach some things out of that personal experience. You never lose control. Someone that is oppressed, possessed, whatever, never loses control. You only think that you have lost control, but the moment you decide to take authority and make a decision, that enemy cannot do anything. It just can't. Hollywood has tried to paint the picture that the devil can jump on you or in you and make you do things that you are, you are not in agreement with. I have been in deliverance sessions personally where somebody started flailing around and acting up all that stuff, and it's like, hey, stop. Listen, look at me. And they do, they stop. Sometimes people think they have to act that way. Sometimes, see, this is how the inside of what possession looks like, is you're hearing things telling you to do stuff, and so you start doing it because you think you have to obey them. But the moment you help people realize, no, they have been stripped of any and all power, Amen. then people stop manifesting those behaviors. But sometimes it's difficult because the psychosis has gone so deep that they... They think that you yourself are a demon. Anyway, I don't want to get too deep into all that stuff, but I don't want to glorify it. But just know that the issue is not that don't, don't walk out of here thinking that if I complain, I'm going to get possessed. Because <laughs> that's not the point. You understand what I'm saying? The issue, and, and if you complain, that doesn't mean that you're possessed. It really doesn't even mean that you're under the influence of a devil. Okay? It just means you are functioning in that kind of realm. You are functioning according to the way they want you to function because you're blaming God and you're doing this toward people and your tongue is cursing and not blessing. Does that make sense? You know, we get like, oh my God, maybe I'm possessed, maybe I need to... You know what? You might have a place in your life where you are open to demonic suggestion but it's very easy to deal with because you pick the truth and the promise that you want. You meditate on that to the degree that it actually changes how you feel, and then your behavior changes. Amen. For me personally, 
hearing audible voices every day, waking up for about six months, thinking that it was too late for me, gonna go to hell no matter what. I, in fact, thinking that I was already dead. The moment that hope came alive in my heart and I thought, wait a minute, maybe there's hope in Jesus. I mean, from there on, it was just walked in more and more and more and more and more freedom. And it wasn't a moment where somebody came and performed the service of deliverance upon me. You know what I mean? My deliverance was walked out as I discovered who I was, as I learned the truth, as I learned what Jesus actually accomplished, and in my heart I started to believe that. That put my focus on this spiritual truth, and, and it was like I just didn't even entertain that stuff anymore. Now, that was my walk, you know, I'm, and like I said, I don't want to try to build doctrine out of that, but we don't need to be afraid of the devil. You're not going to accidentally become oppressed. The reason it's difficult, see, this is, this is interesting because the reason it's so difficult, those of you that work in deliverance, the reason it's so difficult to get people delivered is because they believe what that lie is. So even if you get that enemy off of them, they're still standing there thinking and believing the same thing they did before. Although they might feel better, they might have experienced the healing. The truth is now you've got to change the way they think. True repentance then needs to happen. Amen. Believe the truth. Jesus showed up. The first thing he said when he was getting ready to preach was repent and believe the gospel. Yeah, come on. Repent means change the way that you think. And it should be reflected in your behavior. Repentance doesn't mean when you run down here and you cry and you convince God of how sorry you are and then He says, okay, I now believe you're sorry enough. Now I will give you forgiveness. No, you're forgiven because of the sacrifice. But you may not be experiencing it until you change the way that you think. I just really fast forwarded because I, I am going to get to the part where James talks about the enemy. But let's just keep reading, and then I'll, I'll, I'll expound a little bit more. Is this good so far? Yes. All right. Verse 16, James 3:16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven... See, notice that he's talking about two different kinds of things. There's heaven's wisdom, there's carnal wisdom. Carnal wisdom is the play, playground of the enemy. Spiritual wisdom is directly from God and will teach you humility and teach you to apply the word and walk out all those promises that, the Holy, that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Lead, lead and guide you into all truth. Remind you of what he had taught you. Tell you what the Father is saying. Show you things to come. Amen. Man, this is good stuff. All right, so verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. See, James had already dealt with that they weren't displaying this kind of behavior. This is the kind of display, the kind of behavior, that, the kind of faith that you say you're operating in should display. And that's what he's dealing with. Where, where are you looking for influence? What are you looking to? Are you looking to the Lord for wisdom? Or are you just in the world under whatever kind of influence that happens? And it's a decision. You, you are never in neutral. 
you're never in neutral. You are either intentionally open to and acknowledging the Lord, not trying to hear His voice and figure out every step that He's telling you to take. I don't mean that because I believe we follow God naturally because our heart was recreated to hear His voice. It's programmed to pick up His frequency. And as you just believe the truth, you will follow Him without ever even intellectualizing if you're making the right decisions or not. You'll just follow Him, and it'll be natural, and you'll, and you'll walk that way. But if... Now, don't take this as a formula, but if you're recognizing that there's complaining in your life, and if you're recognizing that there's favoritism toward one another, or you're comparing your sin toward one another, or all this kind of stuff... You're probably not open to the Lord. You're probably under the influence of your mama, your, the world, the last movie that you watched. I mean, we are highly, highly suggestible. I don't know if you know that about yourself. Do, do this to each other. You know how you get a song stuck in your head and then you like start singing it? Like, I wonder if I can get them to start singing this song. And then you like sing it and you don't really say anything. And you're like, then they start singing it. You ever done that? Yes. Not as manipulation, but, you know, just human behavior is interesting. That's what the enemy does. And it's what God does. Y'all okay? Yeah. That's what he'll do. The enemy will start to resonate a lie, start to sing the song of complaining and, and deception. And, and it's usually in agreement with what you already believe because of what you've already been through. And if you've got enough religion and church background, it's really easy to deceive you. Because we've been told so many lies about the character of God in church. Yeah. I love the body of Christ. And I think the gospel is on the rise. And there is an awakening unto righteousness. But the enemy still plays with religion. I think religion is the enemy's best weapon. Yes, it is. Not even sin. Yes. It's, it's religion. Right. Religion meaning that your stance before God fluctuates based on your performance. The enemy will use that and beat you to the ground. Oh my gosh, maybe I'm possessed. That's not the point. Don't go there with it, please, you know, because we, we'll go back and forth on things like this. <clears throat> Remember, it's about function. In other words, am I functioning like the enemy wants me to function, not do I have a devil? Okay? Don't ask yourself, do I have a devil? Just ask yourself, which knowledge am I operating in? Spiritual knowledge or anything else? So, because, I, you know, sometimes we talk about the enemy and everybody gets scared and wonders if they need to go through deliverance, and it's just, that's not the goal here. So, uh, James, let's pick up in James 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. <laughs> when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Then he says, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Man, there's a lot in this right here. There's a lot in this. So, number one, resist 
I looked it up. It has to do with yield, yielding. Resist means to withstand. Never once in the definition of resist does it mean pick up the sword and charge. <laughs> it doesn't mean attack. Okay? It means withstand. It comes from two different root words. One is opposite. And the other is to make a stand or stand firm. So the idea of resisting is really the same idea as repentance. And it's interesting that we have all these doctrines yeah. and all these separate components that we think, we think we're supposed to learn and get right within Christianity when really conceptually and functionally they're very, very similar. Resisting the enemy is the same as repentance, which is the same as the kind of spiritual warfare that we're supposed to do, and that is bring all thoughts captive Amen. to what Christ was obedient to. It's really all kind of the same. In other words, how are you using your mind to live toward this world or reactionary or, or whatever? So the idea of resistance is to set yourself opposed to the lie. Because you remember, I, I hope I'm making this clear in regard to you're not dealing with I don't want us to focus on the entity of the demon itself. I want us to think about the function of the demon. In other words, it's not, what's this demon's name? What's this? I'm not belittling that because that can be valuable. But in general, you're not trying to get in their mindset. You're setting yourself opposed to what their function is. In other words, this is the lie. This is what has been coming. This is the way that I've been thinking, which is in that demonic realm. So I'm not even going to try to deal with that spirit personally, but what is it that's trying to be accomplished in my life? That's what I'm setting myself as opposed to. And I'm just going to stand firm. And their nature is to run. The nature of a coward is to run yes. when they have opposition. Especially if you know the truth. I personally believe that as a believer, you can be so grounded in the truth of who you are in Christ the enemy puts you on a do not disturb list. Amen. Come on. You know how there's certain cults that walk around and they knock on doors? I had a particular cult come to my door one time and they were knocking and I went out, ah, you know, you know, and I stepped out and I talked to them, listened to them, asking them questions. I like to ask them questions yeah. in their own logic. You know, and they're like, oh. but so then I got a word of knowledge about this guy, about his mother having cancer. And I said, you know, this sounds like a really weird question, but does your mother have cancer? And man, I knew I got it right because his eyes bugged out, you know. Yeah. I said, man, come here. Let's pray for your mom. And the guy f almost fell backwards off yeah. my front porch, about three or four steps. They put me on a do not knock list <laughs> because they hadn't been back. I've seen them in the neighborhood. I'll watch. They go down and they skip my house and they go down. The <laughs> they do have that within those groups. They have that. Don't go to that house. Don't go to that house. I don't know why, but that's just what they do. The enemy's the same way. All right. So, so much. I don't like trying to do series on the enemy, so I pack it all in. Every three or four times a year, I'll pack a bunch of this stuff in. So you look at Jesus, right? There's two areas where you can really learn about how the enemy works. One is with Job, and another one is with Jesus. I want to look at both of them pretty quickly. With Jesus... What the enemy did was try to attack what was just declared about Jesus. Amen. 
In other words, Jesus came to John the Baptist, was baptized, and a voice came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, Jesus, more than anything, probably wanted to walk in that truth that He was the Son of God. Now, it says that He was tempted in every way, like we are, yet without sin. So that means that He had the opportunity to not believe the truth. Did He not? Now, this is, touches on Christ, Christology of whether or not you believe that Jesus could have sinned. If you, if you can be tempted, you can sin. And it's an interesting... I'm going to blow it. This is kind of... In verse, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted, neither tempts He any man. Right? Then it says of Jesus, Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. I just quoted two scriptures. Am I saying Jesus was not God? No. What I'm saying is, Jesus operated as a man on this planet. He laid down His divinity. He laid down His Godhood. Although He was birthed from heaven, He was the logic and the wisdom and the exact image of God manifested into a human. I mean, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because He is everything that God knows and how God functions and the wisdom and the character, all of that personified in a human, and that's Jesus. But He was here as a man, limited. Why? Because a man needed to gain salvation for all mankind. We couldn't do it on our own, so a man had to do it. Man has legal authority on this planet. Mankind has legal authority on this planet. That's why He had to be that way. I mean, I know I'm giving you a lot, but it's... But it's building to a particular uh, point here. So, with Jesus, he could have sinned. He could have fallen under the temptation of the enemy. But what did the enemy tempt him with? The very first thing, if you are the Son of God. See, God had just said, this is my, this is my Son. The enemy comes and says, oh really? If you are the Son of God. Then it wasn't, it wasn't like he just kind of made something up. Jesus must have had something within him that was like the forefront of his mind of what he wanted to accomplish and walk out, which is what the enemy will use against you. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was weak or faltered or anything like that, but that's just what the enemy came at him with because this had just been declared about. See, there was nothing in Jesus for the enemy to use. So he had to use something externally, and he used the very words that God had spoken over him. If you are the Son of God... Prove it by your performance. Fulfill your calling by trying to yield to a temptation to prove who you are rather than declaring who you are and then living out of that. So at the end of that, in, Jane, in uh, Luke 4, watch this, it's really interesting. Put up put, uh, Luke 4.13, if you would there, Philip. Luke 4.13 now, we all know the story. Jesus went through the temptations, and He didn't give in, and He didn't believe the enemy, and He stood His ground. And then watch this. This is, this is where you learn how the enemy works. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left until an opportune time. The opportune time is what the enemy is waiting for. The opportune time that James warns about is when he hears you complaining. When he hears you backbiting other people. 
when he hears you confessing things that are not true and not godly. I'm telling you, when you are complaining, you won't notice when the enemy starts to get you to resonate the lies because you're already thinking carnally. He's very subtle. He's very slick. He's very deceptive. But the moment you recognize it, you put your heart and your mind back on God's truth, Amen. and then you just don't even hear that frequency anymore. It's like hypnosis. You can pull that down. He, he, he's, like, he's like a master psychologist. Because honestly, I've studied possession quite a bit. And it sounds more like hypnosis than, forceful, than a forceful overtaking of someone. In other words, you become suggestible. You become open to believing something that they would try to do. Now here's the way a stronghold works. You have a a lie that you believe, the enemy comes in and attaches itself to that lie, but the enemy is not the stronghold, the lie is. So you remove the stronghold, the enemy goes off with it. The lie is the stronghold, not the spirit. Alright, so then let's look at Job, because people lose their minds when they read Job. Y'all with me so far? Yes. I know it's like eight sermons in one. but So let's look at Job chapter 1. And if you would put it up there, verse, starting in verse 7, Job 1, 7. Because the, so many people get their theology about the devil from Job. Right? Now, you can look at how God relates with the devil in Job's life or in Jesus' life. Which one do you want? Right. So, the enemy does the same thing to Jesus that he tried to do with Job. Okay? You, are you familiar with the story of Job? Yes. All right. Well, let's read here. Uh, Job 1, 7. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro from the earth, walking across... You know, he's such... He, here's the thing. This will be like, well, duh, when I tell you. Anytime you see the enemy speaking in Scripture, know that he's lying. <laughs> know that he's trying to deceive. You don't look at the responses of the enemy to try to gain truth. You look at his responses and realize, okay, what's the deception? You understand that? Because what we do is we read the words of the enemy... And it's like, okay, well, God operates this way because this is what the devil said. All right, I'll make my point here. So he's like, yeah, you know, I've been walking around the earth. I haven't been doing much. You know, he's such a liar. <laughs> Verse 8. Verse 8 is interesting because he says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He's blameless and upright and a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, doesn't that sound like, and maybe you've been taught, that God was kind of inviting the enemy to test him? You ever been taught that? God was kind of setting Job up here? Watch what it reads in the, uh, in the Young's literal translation, which is like a direct translation out of the Hebrew. In other words, they didn't take it and rearrange the words to try to say something. These are just direct words. Sometimes it doesn't read properly, but you get the idea more. This is verse 8 in Young's Literal. It says, And Jehovah said to the adversary, 
Have you set your heart against my servant Job? There's a big difference. Have you considered my servant Job? And have you set your heart against my servant Job? Immediately, when the enemy mentions Job to the Lord, God comes to his defense. Wait a minute. God's pretty perceptive, isn't he? Because the devil's like, ah, I've just been walking around in the earth. You know, he's like, wait a minute. You set your heart on my servant Job. Wow. Thank you. Verse 9. Remember, the devil's a liar. Verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Man, I'm telling you. Keep it on verse 11. I, I want you to see this. What is the devil doing to God? He's trying to tempt him. Can God be tempted? No. James 1.13 God can't be tempted, neither tempts he any man. So, was what happened to Job God's actions as a result of the enemy tempting him? Do you see that? I mean, is that... Because you're looking at me like, oh yeah, we heard this before. Now, people use the theology that God then responded to the devil's temptations to bring death and destruction into Job's life. But God cannot be tempted. There is no way that what happened to Job was a result of God doing what the enemy wanted. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. All right. Behold... Well, this is NIV, but very well then. That's a really poor translation. In the original language, it's behold. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, when you see the word behold, it's like an angel showing up or somebody's speaking, and what they're doing is they're declaring something that's already true. Behold this. or In other words, look, this is the reality here. Look, pay attention, this is what's already going on. So what he's saying is, behold, he's already in your hands. And I'll deal with that, why he's already in your hands. Then he says, but you can't touch him. Do you see that? Is that legal? Are you with me so far? All right, verse 13. Actually, I'm going to jump down to Job 3.25. Now, what you have to realize, too, is that Job would say, Job was doing sacrifices because maybe his kids had offended God. Job loved God as much as he knew about who God was. God, you know, this was, this was probably pre-flood. This was sin had been rampant for a while. You know, maybe there's Nephilim running around as kings and setting themselves up. 
I mean, the world was a lot different in Job's day. You didn't have the revealed Word of God. You didn't have the prophets going through the land displaying who God was. They were just trying to figure out the best they could. I mean, it was a really different time on the planet at that time. So Job didn't know that he was speaking the, the errors against God. So what happens is fear grips him, and fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think really all of Job hinges around this idea, Job 3.25, for the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which, what, that which I was afraid of has come to me. Now, then Job gets all his buddies around him that are willing to blame God, and in verse, uh, watch this, 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 is, this is crazy that he does this. I've got a lot of scriptures and I'm trying to not read too many, but in, in a Three, well, it's further down. <laughs> it's in there. Where Job says, I am righteous, and God has taken these things away from me. And you've all heard it. We've had worship songs written about it. We sing them. They play them on the radio. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You read through the first chapter of Job. Did God actually take anything away from Job? No. No. The enemy took things away from him. Did God give the enemy permission to go attack Job? No. He already had authority to go, or, or, or opportunity to go in and attack Job. God was not giving the enemy permission. God was not the one taking the stuff away from him. God put parameters around and said, you can't touch him, I'm protecting him. As far as everybody else that's around him, I hope they trust me too. Man, we get a lot of weird theology about, yeah. about what Job. But if you consistently, if you go through the book and you look at what it says and what it's not saying, you come to the conclusion that at the end, when Job repents and changes his mind and says, I had heard about you, but now I know you. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. It goes back to everything that he'd said about God. All the stuff, the accusations that he brought against God. All of that to say, it's not the enemy that's going to God to get permission to attack you because God's not doing that. The devil tempts you, right? Does God tempt you? No. Then why would God work with someone for the purpose of tempting you? He doesn't do that. The enemy is a liar. He's a thief. And, and he's... His only power is your willingness to believe his lies. The absolute only power. In Colossians, we have this passage that says that Jesus stripped them of any and all power. That Jesus took their authority. Actually, I don't think the devil really even had authority. It's taught that mankind sinned and gave authority to the devil. You don't really ever even see that. I don't believe it that way. I think that's the lie that the enemy has wanted us to believe, that he has the right to do anything on this planet, and he doesn't. So I'll end on this. Your sin does not give the devil the right to come into your life because Jesus stripped him of any and all power. Your willingness to believe their lies does not give him permission to stay in your life. 
Anything that he does or has access to in your life is illegal. And the final point that it's illegal is because this. You are in covenant. You are a joint heir with the covenant between the Father and the Son. You have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. You have been hidden with Christ in God. You have been sealed with the Spirit in that place for the day of resurrection. How in the world can the devil even get in there? The enemy can never get between you and the Father. The enemy cannot touch who you really are. That is the eternal spiritual side of who you are. He only tries to do out the, the stuff out here in the world around us. And this is my last point number two. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, he can't physically make you sick. Yeah. Like we're taught, well, sickness is of the devil. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm sick because the devil made me sick. No, you're not. I, I've studied it. I mean, I've done a lot of study on this kind of stuff. You look at sickness, Satan, the functions and everything. Remember how you're suggestible when you're complaining and when you're doing these things? Well, I promise you, sickness attracts the enemy. Sometimes you become so focused on the lie that it deteriorates your body and you develop a disease, but the enemy cannot come into your life and make you sick. He doesn't have that kind of power. Now, he can suggest to you, you ever done this? It's like you hear a story about cancer and you're like, oh, maybe I have cancer. And then you start noticing all these symptoms. You run that path, watch out. But it's not the enemy shows up and says, I'm going to give you cancer. If he could, think about it. If he could do the stuff that we think he could do, we'd all be dead. We'd be gone. The planet wouldn't be full of the Spirit of God. The planet wouldn't be full of all the stuff that we see. It'd be, it'd be gone. It just would. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he could physically do it, he would have done it. But he does it soulishly. He does it mentally. Guys, there's so much, there's so much to go into about all this stuff. He doesn't operate in that realm where God is. He's been cast out of that place. He operates where you think. And I don't mean he gets in your brain or makes you hear things. But he's, he's speaking. And it's the language of deception. And it's very easy to turn away from it. And that's just become convinced of the truth. Amen? Amen? I know that's a lot. I know the, the more knowledge I'm packing in, the heavier it gets. But we don't need to be afraid of the enemy. He's got no right, and he's got no power. So just go ahead and decide that you're going to believe the truth. Amen. 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 Father, we thank you that you've delivered us. You've set us free. You have delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of your dear son. Say, I'm in his kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Father, our hearts and our minds are open to you to be taught and be led by you so that we never even entertain the idea of deception and give the enemy an inroad into our lives with our tongue, with our choices, with our behavior, because we only want to reflect you. I want it to be said of me, just like Jesus said, the enemy comes and he has nothing in me. Amen. Amen.